0: Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. Today we are continuing our message series called Created. And if you're new to Encounter, let me just kind of fill you in. Uh, we are doing a summer message series through the book of Genesis. So sometimes during the summer in uh, in in every year, we like to take some time and kind of maybe study a book of the Bible. Genesis is uh, 60 chapters, and it's a lot uh, to go through. And so we're breaking it up over the entire summer and talking about what is, what is God created this place for? And who are we? What did God create us for? Who are we supposed to be? And how do we relate? to him. And so we've been kind of working our way through. The first week we talked about creation and the uh, the creation story. And then we talked about the fall of man and the effects of, of how even the ramifications of that. And then we still deal with it today. Last week we talked about the flood. And now today we're going to begin talking about the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel and uh, the events surrounding it. So we're going to be reading in Genesis 10 and 11 today. And it's Maybe a passage of Scripture that is obscure. Maybe you've heard of it before. Perhaps you haven't. I will say that it is a passage that requires quite a bit of digging because on its face value, just like the flood story, it can be confusing sometimes and can make us have a picture of God that I don't believe was the intention. And so Genesis chapter 10 and 11 is where we're going to be focusing today, but I want to give you a little bit of lead up so you know what's happening. So chapter 10 begins with more generations, more genealogies and beginnings. Remember we said one of the key focuses of Genesis is this idea of genealogies, of beginnings, of generations. It is the beginning of something. That's why the series is called Created. The idea is that God was starting something. God was creating something. And we see the ramifications of what happens in Genesis all the way through the rest of Scripture and ultimately to Jesus. And so Genesis 10 begins with this idea of generations, more beginnings. It talks about Noah and his sons. So chapter 9 ended with, with Noah and his family coming out of the ark, And God blessing them and telling them now to be fruitful and multiply. So that's beginning to happen. And Noah and their children begin having children, begin building up the world's population again. They're experiencing and participating in God's blessing. Remember, blessing means to pass along God's goodness, to pass along what God has created and to be fruitful and multiply. They're doing that. But again, people start to forget God again. And they begin to walk away from him. So he once again intervenes, like we said last week. And what we're going to see today in the Tower of Babel, I believe, is actually a very powerful lesson for all of us today, particularly one that resonates very much today. So let's read the story together at the beginning of chapter 11, and then we're going to make a couple of observations that I think are going to bring this story into focus for us. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It's also on the screen here, but I would like to just make note that we have free Bibles If you don't have a Bible, please grab one right outside the doors. Uh, We have free Bibles as well as at our Connection Center. Take one with you. We believe the Bible is the source of life. It is God's Word, and so everything we do stems from it. I encourage you to get one and read along with us. Genesis 11 begins here. It says, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley In the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, I have an image on the screen for us to look at, real quickly, just to give you a little bit of context. So, if you're looking at the screen on the far left side here, that's Israel, okay? Now, where Noah and the ark, according to scripture, landed was in the Ararat plain, the circle up near the top. Now, you can see that it's a mountain range, and last week we said that it was somewhere between Turkey and Armenia. Now, what the scriptures are telling us is that as the people began to, to, to grow and the population began to increase, they began to move into the plains area and settled in the land of Shinar, which is here. This is Babylon Okay, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. And so remember uh, Nineveh in our Jonah story. Nineveh is up in where it says Mesopotamia. So you can see where they began, the entirety of Scripture. I didn't understand this as I was growing up in church as as a kid in Sunday school. I always thought that everything that happened in the Bible happened like in the vicinity of Jerusalem. That was kind of my idea, that everything happened in Israel, but that's not the case. In reality, it was here, most of it takes place in the Middle East, in Iraq, the Iraq-Syria area, Turkey area, in Israel and Egypt. Okay, So this is generally what happens. But in the very beginning of Genesis, everything started after Noah in the mountains and they migrated to the Iraq-Syria area and then moved westward, okay? So that's the context of it. So when it says that they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there, that would be right here where this big circle is in the Babylonia area. Now, that's going to be important for us in a few minutes, and I'll help you understand why. Verse 3 continues. So they said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower.'" With its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Verse 5 then, this is kind of where it gets confusing for people. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, If they have begun. To do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth." Okay. I don't know about you, but as a kid, I was always confused by this. Again, God seems like a bully, right? In the book of Genesis, in the early parts of, of uh, we have the, the the creation story, and then these Adam and Eve eat an apple, and then God curses them, right? And then we see the flood story, where everybody is is uh, is is wicked according to scripture, and God wipes them off the planet. And now we're in a space of where God is, is looking down and seeing people being united and building a big tower. And then God, apparently in insecurity, decides that he's going to confuse them and send them all off. The picture that often is painted to me that I, I don't, that I was always confused by oftentimes is that God somehow seems malevolent or angry or insecure. It's a very bizarre story. But here's the thing. To me, this seems a lot like Greek mythology. This passage of scripture seems a lot like Greek mythology, where you have a god and his people who are adversarial to each other, right? You know, the stories of Zeus or the stories of uh, Prometheus or all of these different Greek gods or demigods, and oftentimes they were at odds with each other, and in order to keep the power structure proper, the gods would oftentimes have to hold people down. That's the feeling that I get from this passage of scripture. But as usual, if we take a deeper look, what's happening behind the scenes and read between the lines, we see there's actually something completely different going on and a message that is extremely relevant today to us. Now, to the original readers, this is important for us, to the original readers, the Jewish people, the ones who lived this, this was their history, they wouldn't have needed to read between the lines. They would have understood. It's kind of like when people talk to us about our history with Britain, with England, right? We, we know it. So we don't, whenever we tell the story about the American Revolution or maybe the Civil War or even the Civil Rights Movement or whatever it might be, that's part of our collective identity. We understand. We don't have to give all the details that underlie it, right? But to an outsider, to someone who is maybe thousands of years later who's never, who doesn't, isn't, isn't involved with the intimate details of it, we need those details. And so it's so important for us to read the context and to understand and study. And I found that when you dig into the passage of Scripture in the language, when you understand what happens in the chapter before, which I'm going to unlock for you in just a minute, you're going to see that on the face value, it looks like maybe God is an insecure bully, but the reality is there's something deep happening that's going to, I think, expose something to us that's going to challenge us for many years to come in our faith. So let's begin here. Instead of the passage being about a childish, frustrated God lashing out against his people, if you're taking notes, write this down. The Tower of Babel is a tale of conquest, technology, and our inherent drive to be our own gods. The Tower of Babel is a tale of conquest, technology, and our inherent drive to be our own gods. Now, for us to understand this, we have to go back to chapter 10. Chapter 10 Talks about conquest. Verses 8 through 12. Read with me. Verse 8 says, Cush fathered a man named Nimrod. Now it's funny, the name Nimrod, we often call people that as like a joke, but this was his name. He was serious. And actually, an interesting note the word Nimrod, the, the name Nimrod, actually comes from the root word in Hebrew, which means rebel, to rebel. This is important. A little note, put it in the back of your head, okay? Fathered a man named Nimrod who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kauna in the land of Shinar. Remember that image with the circle around it? If you looked at Babylon in the middle, all the little towns that we mentioned are on that image. Verse eleven: From that land he went to Assyria, and he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and the great city of Kala. Now this is this is a language thing again, okay. What this passage is painting for us is to understand that this is a story of conquest and empire building. When it says that he founded these cities, what does that mean? It means that Nimrod, who was a powerful warrior whose name came from the word rebellion, and this is also very important because in Scripture we see it. How many times in the Old Testament? And even in the New Testament, do we see that it says that so-and-so was named something because of the scenario that was happening around it. So what was happening essentially is that Nimrod began to consolidate power. He would go from one tribe to the other because there were no cities at this time. So what was happening is that Nimrod would gather his clan together with battle. We're talking violence. Warlords would come through and would subjugate another group of people through violence, would overcome that entire clan or tribe, and would establish enough people in the area to build a city. And then he would move from one place to the other. This is not so far from our memory. The Roman Empire did the same thing, right? The Persian Empire did the same thing. Later on in Scripture, we see the Assyrian Empire did the same thing. Okay, This was so common in the time. This is just the beginning of it, where someone gathered enough strength and enough power and began to feel as though he was above other people, would go to an area, subjugate them, make them be their slaves, integrate them into society, force work and labor upon them in the name of conquest. This is the picture that is being painted for us. Taking what you want without consideration of others, forcing upon others. And we see this everywhere. And it's even reflected today, conquest, the idea of conquest globally and personally. Think about it. What are the empires that you and I are building ourselves? Think about what do I want? What do you want in your own life that you get and you gather and you acquire at the behest of other people? Or at the cost of other people? What are the things that you and I or that our nation or other nations gather and acquire at the expense of other people? This is the same concept of conquest. I'm not trying to get political here, but I believe that it extends into the concept of geopolitics. I believe it extends into places around the world when we see uh, nations in Africa or in Asia Places that, that will hold one people group down in order to gather their resources. We hear about corporations buying up land and taking water away from villages who have no water and force them to pay for it when it has been free all of their lives. We hear about banks and Wall Street and people begin to fear as though those banks have consolidated so much power that now we don't have the ability to manage ourselves anymore. They drive rates up. These are all the kinds of things that we're seeing from Nimrod acquiring so much that you can begin to force and oppress upon other people. Scripture teaches this. It's talking about this, that it is built into our human nature that when we can gather, when we can acquire, that sometimes and oftentimes we will not stop with what we need but continue to gather and gather and gather and eventually it becomes such an addiction that we begin to take from others who don't have. And we would rather keep for ourselves rather than give away something that we have plenty of. And I understand this can be hard for us, because I think everybody in the room here probably feels like we're good people, you know? Like, we're nice. I like to give a buck to the guy on, on the, at, the, at the stoplight who's homeless, right? I mean, I understand that. And I'm not saying that you and me are building empires. But I am saying that I believe that Scripture is teaching us to be aware, to think about what empires are we building in our own lives. How should we be thinking about our own country? How should we be citizens of our world? How should we look at other people around us, other nations, other people groups, other socioeconomic groups? How should we view them? And does our own convenience, does participating in a society or participating in a culture that promotes the oppression of other people or that that even by my own systemic lifestyle perhaps facilitates other people from being able to get ahead or to get up or to make themselves situations. There's a responsibility, I believe, that Scripture is teaching about that because what we see here is that the Scripture is teaching that this conquest, this empire, God intervened against it. It's, it's automatically a negative idea here, a negative association. So first and foremost, what are we striving after at the expense of of those around us, and perhaps even at the cost of our relationship with God. What things in our own lives are we focused on gathering and acquiring and building instead of looking at God as our provider, instead of looking at him as our source, instead of allowing him to be the director of our value system, of the way that we behave, and the way that we operate. Even stemming down to the jobs that we accept, whether we recycle or not. I don't know. Simple things and great things. You understand? That, I believe, is how deep this passage of Scripture is talking about. So conquest, the story of the Tower of Babel, is beginning with the concept of conquest. But then there was something else that happened. It's also about technology. And you're like, Jared, why the heck are we talking about technology? I think it's going to make sense in a second. Look at verse 3 in chapter 11. It says, So they said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar, and they said, come, let us build a city and a tower with its top into the sky. Now, it's important for us to understand here that up to this point, all buildings were made of either wood or stone. Now, when I mean stone, I don't mean nicely chiseled cinder blocks that you get at Home Depot. I mean rocks that you would find on the side of a hill. So in order to stack rocks that were not shaped uniformly, you can't stack very high. You know, when I went to Ireland or other parts of the world, you would see these walls along roads, and they were stacked with rocks. And they are only maybe three or four feet high, because that's about as high as you can go when you're stacking mist-shaped rocks, right? But somebody along the way discovered the technology of making bricks, of creating something that you can stack and then hold together. And once you do that, you can now begin to build buildings. You can now stack on top of each other. What is that called? That's called technology, right? The idea of now something that was not, using that same thing, crafting it, and putting it in a way to create some kind of progress, it's called technology. People talk all the time, and they say things like the Bible is irrelevant. No, no, no. They're just not reading it. The Bible here is talking about technology. Now remember, Nimrod, warlord, conqueror, establishing cities, uses this technology to consolidate power and grow more influential. This is what we see happening all the time. This story is reminding us that technology can be abused and it can be used to control and that it can also divide. Remember we talked about the, the effects of the curse. One of the effects of the curse of sin is division. And technology oftentimes does divide. Technology is beautiful and wonderful and can create incredible advances but it could also be used to create class systems and to divide against and to hold people back. In often case, what we see in this story is with a conqueror building cities, that there are those who are seeing this technology, who are seeing his use of violence and his power, and are probably rightly terrified. And there's a passage of a book that I wanted to read to you that I thought I couldn't say it any better. So it's from a book called What is the Bible by a man named Rob Bell. And this is what he wrote about this particular passage regarding technology. He says, The story reflects a growing awareness and concern that there is a higher good for humanity than the strong dominating the weak, the powerful crushing the powerless, the proud raising themselves up to godlike status. Imagine building little walls out of stone your entire life and then making a trip to Babel and seeing people starting work on a tower made of bricks. It may have been awe-inspiring, but we can also assume that it may have been terrifying. If somebody can do that, what else could they do? Or to put more of an edge on it, what couldn't they do? Imagine if other countries had nuclear bombs, but your country didn't. And imagine what it would be like to not have nuclear bombs, but to know that one of those countries that did have nuclear bombs had actually used them in recent history dropping those bombs on actual cities that people lived in. That's terrifying. I believe that what the scriptures are trying to teach us here is not to fear technology, but to understand that if it's used improperly, it can be extremely destructive. And we use technology all the time, right? We use it to gain access to the Internet, We use it to air condition the room that we're sitting in right now. We use it to create educational systems, to broadcast, right? We use technology to fly in an airplane, to go to another country, to bring the hope of Jesus Christ and to feed people, right? All of these technological advances are wonderful. They're incredible, but just as I read in that passage from the book, technology can also be destructive. It can also be used to oppress. It can be used to destroy. It can be used to force. It can be used to enslave. It can be used to separate. Did you know that over half of our country still doesn't have access to the Internet? It may not be the exact figure. It may have been years ago. That was the last time I heard it. But I remember there are people who are in remote locations who don't even have Internet access, let alone broadband, Right? There are people who still live in parts of our country, maybe by choice. In some, in some cases, they're in such remote places they don't even have electricity. I've been to some of these places; it's incredible. Running water. They're still using outhouses and wells, right? But there are people in our own city who don't have access to some of the technologies, maybe because of cost. Perhaps they don't have access to educational systems. There are all sorts of technological opportunities that sometimes have been built into our society that have left other people behind. And I think that's what the scripture is trying to teach. The message of the gospel is at its core one about unity and one about reconciliation. So we can see why the Bible would tell us to be cautious and responsible with technological advancement because our tendency is, like I said, with conquest is to use things for our own gain at the cost of what other people might lose in the process. I understand that this passage of Scripture and even this message is heavy. Next week, we're going to talk about Abraham, and it's going to be a little bit more light. But I believe that the Bible starts with the first 10 chapters, the first 11 chapters, to teach us the gravity of the situation. Not to put us down, but to understand the incredible gift that Jesus Christ is that he is the intervene, the intervention, the one that has intervened in order to give us hope and life and grace and to show us that we don't have to be subject to that kind of conquest, that we don't have to be slaves any longer, that we don't have to live in a life that is, that is ruled by these things that separate us and divide us and, and create division amongst ourselves and our family members that cause pain and hurt, that Jesus provides a way out from all of that. The Tower of Babel is a tale of conquest, one of technology and our inherent drive to be our own gods and i want to finish with that chapter 11 verse 4 says let us make a name for ourselves it wasn't enough to just build a tower we because otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth you know perhaps the easiest observation to draw from the tower of babel account and really all throughout scripture is our and when i say our i mean all of humanity's desire to be our own gods it started in the garden we see it in the flood. We see it in this story. We see it all throughout Scripture, forgetting who God is, trying to acquire things, build things, amass things, ultimately to forget about it. I don't think it's any any coincidence. This morning I woke up, and on my radio alarm, um, Ravi Zacharias, who is a, a Christian apolog, apologist who is very intellectual and goes around the world to different universities and churches and, and talks about the intellectual side of the gospel. He was talking reading a passage out of Friedrich Nietzsche's um, writings where he says that God is dead, that we have killed him. That's this morning on my radio as I got up knowing that I was going to be preaching about the idea that oftentimes we like to replace ourselves as gods in the, in the world. We see it everywhere we go. Nobody wants to talk about God. They don't want to talk about about that God is is the Lord of all, that he is the King of kings, Lord of lords. What we want to be is God. We want to advance in technology to the place where we can discover and prove that there is no God. We want to be able to to, uh, essentially discover all sorts of scientific advancements so that we can cure disease, so that we can stop aging. Right? All of this is beautiful, wonderful potential concepts, but But all of it is designed and driven from this idea of that I don't want someone to tell me what to do with my own life. I want to be my own boss. I want to be my own creator. I want to be my own God. And we see that everywhere. But the problem is is that we are not equipped for it. Over and over and over again, we see that we are not equipped to handle the weight of what it means to be God. We want to make the rules. We want to decide what is right right and wrong. But we also don't like the consequences of our failures. We look around our world and we hate it. Why is our world so terrible? It's because we tried to play God. I believe that to my core. Conquest, technological advancement, all trick us into believing that if we can acquire enough things or amass enough power or influence Or authority, if we can cure diseases, if we can use more of our brain capacity, then we won't need God anymore. But the story of the Tower of Babel illustrates our efforts are like a Jenga tower that will topple. We are not equipped to withstand the weight of the decisions that we make. We just cannot. Our drive for conquest and empire building and to so often push the limits of ethics or do not even consider the ethics at all when we're thinking of technology particularly, or the places that we invade, or the places that we want to be influencing over, or within our own nation when we make our own policies, builds a world that cannot sustain itself and consolidates wealth and power with the few, and isolates and marginalizes everyone else. And I want to be extremely clear today. I am not advocating a single political system. I'm talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the Bible, that God did not create humanity to have some have everything and to some have none. And if you, I'm going to get harsh here just a little bit, all right, just maybe not harsh, but just an edge on it. If you are sitting in this room right now and you're thinking that there aren't that many people who are poor or it's not that big of a deal or poverty or hunger or disease isn't that big of a deal, I want you to look at the pictures that my wife comes home with this week. I want you to understand and to to look at, like, National Geographic, to get onto the Internet, watch, to see what's happening in our own nation, to see what's happening around the world. It is so easy, and I am guilty of it, that I can go to my nice job, come home in my nice car to my nice house with nice air conditioning and watch my nice TV and see what I want to see on Netflix and ignore the fact that there are people two streets over who don't have food in their refrigerator. You understand? There are things happening in our world that we must do something about, that we have to be a part of. And I'm not saying that you have to give all of your money to it. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying we have to be a part of the solution. And it starts with our hearts, at least being willing to see that the story of the Tower of Babel is not an insecure God who doesn't want people to become like him. It's really about saying if we continue down the path of conquest and thinking about technology that divides people and amassing power and wealth, we are leaving people behind who God loves, who he cares about. And my wife telling me the story of children who are weeping because of the first time they had food in four days. My gosh, what kind of a person am I if I'm not willing to do something? If my first thought isn't maybe I should try to sign up for one of those child sponsor things that I've been thinking about for years. I mean, I could certainly come up with 20 bucks a month you understand? And I'm not saying that that's what you have to do. What I'm saying is if you don't even think about what could I do, then maybe the gospel isn't infiltrating your heart to the, le- devils, the, the, the depths and the levels that it should be. And I am just as guilty. And as I read this passage this week, as I began to prepare for it, as I was writing it down, the Lord began to just humble and crush me, not in a guilty way, but in a way of, do you see how my heart is for the people around this world who have nothing No one loves them. No one cares for them. I care about them, God says. I love them, and my church is called to be the representative of me, loving them, going to them, reaching them, giving them my name, giving them my hope, giving them food, giving them electricity, giving them water, giving them clothes, whatever it might be. Jesus said that he said, whenever you give to the least of these, whenever you gave a cup of cold water, you gave them food, you gave them clothes, you did it to me. The story of the Tower of Babel is really about who we are as people. And when left to our own devices, we forget about people. We begin to think that we are bigger than we are, that we're more special. And even if we don't think it in our minds, it's an inherent to who we are. That's what sin does. And that's why we're going to see next week God calls a man named Abraham to be a different kind of person. And it sets off something in the rest of Scripture that changes everything. And we're here today because of what happens in the next chapter. the story ends with God intervening again and thwarting the plans of those who've forgotten him and began abusing others by confusing their language and scattering them around the earth. Perhaps the biggest lesson is that God has no limit to his creative ways of intervening and reminding us that we, are, that we make terrible gods. Would you stand with me? So just a couple practical thoughts to close with before we sing and worship to just seal what God has said today. Here's some thoughts. Number one, instead of acquiring, include and share. This should be the hallmark of our faith as Christians. We're supposed to be generous, loving, giving people. It's okay to have things, okay? I like my nice couch. I like the clothes that I'm wearing, and that's fine. Don't feel guilty because you live in a country of prosper. But do not amass and acquire to build security and build walls and divide. Instead, include people in your blessing. Find people in your life who don't have those things and include them. Welcome them to your table. Eat dinner with them. Take them places with you. Share with them. If you have extra, give. Number two, use technology to build bridges and to build up. You know, it's so easy for us to spend our time on cat memes and weird things on Facebook or even things like arguments and division and hatred and fake news articles and all sorts of things that we yell at or argue about and we fight about when instead we can include people. We can use it to connect people across the globe. We can use it to technology to, to help people, to create efficiency, to connect people. So let's use our technology, all the things that we have, the wonders of the world, I don't know, I recently saw the movie Black Panther. How many of you have seen that movie? Black Panther is all about a place called Wakanda that has incredible technology, and they have kept it hidden for centuries. And the whole sort of epi, the epicenter of the story is the idea that, no, we have something and we should share it to make the world a better place. That's the concept that we're seeing here. The technology that we have been blessed with, let's use it to build bridges and to build up. And lastly, let's be diligent to fight against anything that would replace God at the center of our lives. There are a lot of things that want to put at the centerpiece. It could be our paycheck. It could even be our families. You know, it could be schedules. I don't know. There's a lot of things. And each of us it's probably different. But let's be intentionally, like, fight against that. When we see that something is taking the place of God in our lives, it shapes our behaviors. God is the only one who should be shaping our behavior and our thought processes let's pray together. Father, I thank you that your word is active and it is alive. I thank you that when we read a story that on its face value can be confusing, but when we dig into the culture, into the history, into the language, I thank you so much that you are a God that is so complex that you care on so many levels. I thank you that your words teach us, even today, 2,000 years later, thousands of years beyond when Jesus walked the earth, that you were telling stories to people, showing the patterns that we get ourselves into, and seeing that we have not learned our lesson even 5,000 years later, that we still do the same things without you. So God, I pray right now, I repent. And I ask you, church, to do the same thing in your own personal space with God. Repent of your sin, of conquest, of empire building, of acquiring and amassing things for yourself. I repent of that, God. I repent of allowing technology to create division. I repent of the moments where I haven't even considered the ethical consequences of some of the things that I participate in. God, I repent particularly of the times when I have replaced you at the center of my life with things, material things or even relational things, when I have made my marriage or when I have made my paycheck or the things that I possess or own or my job, or whatever it might be, and I have made them the God in my life. I'm sorry. I am sorry. I don't want to be that way. I want people to see that you are good, that you care about the broken and the hurting. I was once the broken and the hurting. And I thank you that you lifted me up. And so as a church today, God, we recenter ourselves on you. We see the story of the Tower of Babylon. We say, that will not be us. That will not be this church. We will not be those kinds of people. We will be different. We will be a collective family in the city of Pittsburgh who will be a light for the hurting, for the broken, for the lost, for the marginalized. That we will look at ways that we can use our blessing and our technology to include people, to build bridges to them, to welcome them, to to help them to reach into those spaces. Not because we're better, but we will kneel down into those places. Give us wisdom, God, and give us heart. Give us strength when it gets difficult. Convict us, God, in our heart. The Holy Spirit, we give you permission to convict us of the areas of our life where we are missing the mark and we are forgetting about you. And now, Lord, we ask that you would draw our attention to the forgotten. Give us wisdom and eyes to see how we can reach them and meet needs. In Jesus' name, amen.